we're in a series in, entitled Gleanings from Genesis. We come to chapter 28. If you're with us this morning and you're without a Bible, just flag one of these guys with Bibles and they'll get one into your hand, uh, hands. And then if you don't own a Bible, please make that Bible a gift from us to you today. Genesis, first book of the Bible, chapter 28, verse 1. And then Isaac called Jacob and blessed him, and charged him and said to him, You shall not take a wife from the daughters of Canaan. Uh, Arise, go to Padan Aram, to the house of Bethuel, your mother's uh, father, and take uh, yourself a wife from there, of the daughters of Laban, your mother's brother. May God Almighty bless you and make you fruitful and multiply you, that you may be an assembly of peoples and give you the blessing of Abraham to you and your descendants with you, that you may inherit the land in which you are a stranger, which God gave to Abraham. And so Isaac sent Jacob away, and he went to Padan Aram, to Laban, the son of Bethuel the Syrian, the brother of Rebekah, the mother of Jacob and Esau. And Esau saw that uh, Isaac had, uh, when he saw that Isaac had blessed Jacob and sent him away to Padan Aram to take himself a wife from there, and that uh, as he blessed him, he gave him the charge saying, you shall not take a wife uh, from the daughters of Canaan, that Jacob had obeyed his, father's, uh, his father and his mother and had gone to Padan Aram. And so uh, Esau saw that the daughters of Canaan did not please his father Isaac. Uh, unfortunately, he had already married two. Uh, so Esau then goes to Ishmael and uh, took uh, Mahalath, the daughter of Ishmael, Abraham's son, the sister of Nebajoth, to be his wife in addition to the wives he had. And now Jacob went out from Beersheba and went to Haran, and so he came to a certain place and stayed there all night, because the sun had set. And he took one of the stones of that place, and he put it at his head, and he lay down in that place to sleep. And then he dreamed, and behold, a ladder was set up on the earth, and its top reached to heaven, and there the angels of God were ascending and descending on it. And behold, the Lord set, uh, stood above it and said, I am the God of Abraham, your father, and the God of Isaac. And the land on which you lie, I will give to you and your descendants. And also your descendants shall be as the dust of the earth. You shall spread abroad to the west and to the east, to the north and south. And in you and in your seed, all of the families of the earth shall be blessed. Behold, I am with you and will keep you wherever you go, and will bring you back to this land, for I will not leave you until I have done what I have spoken to you. And then uh, Jacob awoke from his sleep and said, Surely the Lord is uh, in this place, and I did not know it. And he was afraid. And he said, How awesome is this place? This is none other than the house of God, and this is the gate of heaven. And then Jacob rose early in the morning, and he took the stone that he had put at his head, set it up as a pillar, and poured oil on it. And he called the name of that place Bethel, but the name of that city had been Luz previously. And then Jacob made a vow, saying, If God will be with me 
and keep me in this way that I am going and give me bread to eat and clothing to put on so that I uh, come back to my father's house in peace. Then the Lord shall be my God. And this stone which I have set as a pillar shall be God's house. And of all that uh, you give me, he says to the Lord, I will give a tenth to you. Now hold your place there and turn into the New Testament to the gospel according to John. Uh, John chapter 1. I'm going to read a short passage to you there. John's gospel chapter 1. In verse 47. Jesus saw Nathanael coming toward him, and he said, Behold an Israelite indeed, and in whom is no deceit. And Nathanael said to him, How do you know me? And Jesus answered and said to him, Before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. And Nathanael answered and said to him, Rabbi, you are the Son of God. You are the King of Israel. And so Jesus answered and said to him, Because I said to you, I saw you under the fig tree, do you believe? You'll see greater things than these. And he said to Nathanael, Verily, verily, I say to you, hereafter you shall see heaven open and the angels of God descending and descending upon the Son of Man. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for this record of this incident and chapter in Jacob's life. We know that it's in your book because there is something you want us to know about you and about him from this passage in our own relationship with you. And we pray that you would fill us with your Holy Spirit and give us the ability to hear and to understand what those things are. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. Last week we studied the circumstances under which Esau sold his birthright for a bowl of red in chapter 25. In chapter 27, Isaac, the son of Abraham, the father of both Jacob and Esau, he was thinking that his life was nearing an end. And so he called Esau to come to him, go out into the field and hunt for some game and then prepare some kind of a favorite dish that Isaac had that uh, Esau would prepare so that in receiving that meal, he might then proceed to pronounce uh, the blessing upon uh, Esau. Uh, It is interesting to realize concerning uh, Isaac that he's going to live for another 43 years, and he thinks he's at death door and needs to get this blessing thing taken uh, care of. Um, Have you ever uh, known uh, people that uh, begin to die far too early uh, in their life? I mean, you've got some, the the diversity of mankind is fascinating to watch, really. You You have all of these people who at one extreme will fight for every last five minutes being added to their life. And there's, but there's just as many on the other end of the extreme uh, that begin dying long before 
they should ever be thinking about death and making arrangements for it. And Isaac was one of those. Well, Isaac's plan that he had for Esau here in giving him the blessing, uh, there were two major problems with it. And the first problem is that God had spoken to uh, Rebekah, his wife, concerning the birth of the twins, that the older would serve the younger, that the birthright would go to the younger, not the older. And so here is uh, uh, Isaac doing this in defiance of a revelation of God. The second problem with his plan is that Esau had already sold his birthright uh, to uh, Jacob. And, uh, uh, when, and, and so it was gone. He had already for, forfeited it. And when you look at that whole scene in which uh, it is very deceptive in chapter 27, I've jumped over it, but in the, for those of you who are familiar with it, where uh, Jacob goes in and he's got like hides on his hands to try and be as hairy as, as Esau in order to get the blessing, and it's a pure deception. It's a, it's a terrible scene. Uh, really, and, uh, and he is rightfully condemned for his part in all of that. But remember, uh, Esau is being just as deceptive and de- deceitful with his father and coming to receive the blessing from his father, knowing full well he had sold it to uh, Isaac. There's nothing about Isaac or Jacob or Esau that really shines in any beautiful way in, in uh, chapter 27. And so uh, uh, Isaac here was just plain wrong in what he was doing and God has to rise up and stop him. While Esau was off hunting, we're told, in order to fulfill his end of the bargain here and getting the game and producing the, the, the meal for his, his father, uh, Rebekah comes to Jacob, informs Jacob of, of the plan that is in play here, and uh, she formulated her own plan by which Jacob would then approach Isaac, his father, pretending to be Esau, and then to receive the blessing. Well, the plan worked wonderfully. In, in that sense, and despite some kind of initial hesitation on the part of Isaac, he does pronounce the blessing upon Jacob, and Jacob no more leaves the room following this event than uh, Esau now comes in with his, uh, his food in, in order to come and receive the blessing. Well, when Esau found out what Jacob had done, he was so furious over it, the only thing that he could uh, console his heart with was the day he would murder Jacob for doing what it is that he had, had done here. He didn't want to kill Jacob while his father was still alive. He didn't want to bring that heartbreak into his, his father's life. But he says, the moment my dad is dead, the first thing on my to-do list is going to, kill, uh, to be to kill my uh, twin brother. And uh, Esau's plan became known to Rebekah. There is, uh, it seems, in the, as you look at all of their lives, there is nothing that went on in Esau's mind that didn't come out of his mouth. And there was nothing that happened within the household that Rebekah didn't hear. And so she hears about this plan of Esau to kill Jacob ultimately, 
And she informed Jacob of the plan and then uh, told him to flee to her brother Laban in Haran for his own uh, safety. And her intention was that Esau can't stay angry forever. He'll calm down and then we'll call you back when that uh, when, when all of that happens. And she didn't want to lose both of her sons, one to murder and then the other to being a, a, a murderer. In, in the, the first five verses here of <clears throat> chapter 28, as we formally enter into it, Isaac seems to finally kind of wake up and smell the coffee in terms of how important it is to be in this line of Abraham, Isaac, and ultimately Jacob. And, uh, and, and here he is, he submits now to the fact of, of what he already knew, and that is that God had chosen Jacob to be the means by which he would fulfill the Abrahamic covenant uh, in human history. And so in verse 1, he charged Jacob not to take a wife from among the Canaanites, very pagan, idolatrous uh, culture. He was to go to Padanaram and uh, stay with his uncle Laban, take a wife from among the family of Rebekah, his mother. And in verses 3 and 4, Isaac then formally blessed Jacob with, uh, with the birthright and prayed that God would bless him and that God would make him fruitful and multiply him. And, uh, and then uh, he pronounced the birthright from Abraham uh, upon, uh, upon Jacob there in verse 4, uh, declaring essentially that the promises that God made to Abraham were now going to be fulfilled, uh, not only through Isaac's bloodline, but now through uh, Jacob and his bloodline. And with that blessing, then, uh, Jacob departs from uh, the only kind of settlement that he had known, the only family that he had known, and the, and the security of all of that. And then we come to verse 10, and Jacob then departed for, from Beersheba, uh, which is where the family settlement was, and he heads for Haran. Haran is about 500 miles away. Uh, 500 miles is a long way uh, on a donkey, on a camel. Uh, he doesn't have a donkey or a camel. He is going there on uh, foot. And uh, unbeknownst to anyone but God, uh, what nobody knows is that Jacob isn't leaving Beersheba and his family for a short period of time to return, he's going to be gone for 20 years. And uh, there's nothing that in, in, indicates in the biblical record that he ever saw his mother alive again. Uh, the Lord then appeared in verses 15 through, uh, 11 through 15 here, the Lord uh, then appeared to Jacob in a dream. And the circumstances are given to us there in verse 11. It occurs in a place that he names Bethel. And uh, Bethel exists to this day uh, in that, that site. And Bethel is about 70 miles north of Beersheba. So he's been traveling uh, for th uh, at least three full days and two nights now uh, to get th that 70 miles of the journey uh, out of the way. And you have to remember, he's been kind of a little bit of a rancher and he's not used to uh, a triathlon and walking these kind of distances in three days. And so by the time he comes to the end of the third day, uh, he's got to be physically exhausted. 
I don't care how good your sandals are, you're going to have blisters and you're going to be tired and what your body isn't used to doing on a daily basis and now you're doing in, uh, uh, on steroids in terms of the distances he's covering, his body had to ache. But I think that more than anything that he was feeling in terms of physically, after the three days and now two nights and heading into a, a, a third night here, I'm not sure that the physical side of things was, was what was taking the greatest toll upon him. Because now you, you simply just put yourself in his shoes emotionally and, and uh, mentally. And now he's had, like never before, uh, three full days and two nights to think through his life to think about where he's been, his condition right now, what lies out in, in front of him. And uh, I think that almost certainly he has this uh, swirl of, of regret and loneliness and, and uncertainty in terms of his past. Uh, if he had any conscience at all, and he did have a conscience, he would look back and begin to assess uh, what uh, his past deceits and his past craftiness uh, had uh, won for him in the present tense. And maybe the regret of wondering if I had a chance to do it again, I would uh, do it a little bit differently uh, than I did, if this is the result. In terms of where he was presently, I mean, he's completely alone in the world. Out in what it was essentially just one of the rockiest, most barren places you can be in Israel, in this place called Bethel, and, uh, and he'd never been alone like this in his entire life. And out in front of him, all he knows is he's been given this commandment to go and, and find a wife in Haran somehow. But everything else is, he, he's completely uh, uncertain about. And you put those, the, that three ingredient mental and emotional kind of cocktail together, the regret, the loneliness, the uncertainty, and any one of those is enough to make you miserable. You put them together and life has to be pretty miserable for Jacob at the moment. And uh, for three days and two nights, all of these thoughts, all of these emotions have uh, been doing their work on him. And as he came to Bethel on the physical side, he's so exhausted that when he lays down to sleep, uh, he, pull, he pulls up a rock uh, in order to use it as a pillow. Now that's tired. Uh, I don't know the last time you ever slept on a pillow, but on a, on a, a, a rock, but you've got to be desperate at that point, looking maybe a side sleeper or something like this, and you just want a little support for your head, and uh, that, that's all that, uh, that, that he had. And uh, he is completely unaware of the fact that he wasn't alone at all. I mean, there is a, a considerable amount of activity that is going on in the spiritual realm around his life that he's completely unaware of, uh, including uh, involving God, involving angels, and he's about to get a glimpse of that. You notice then in verse 12 that Jacob dreamed the dream, really, that would end up changing his life. And he saw in this dream a ladder, 
that was founded on the earth and it went all the way uh, up into the heaven. And so you can picture a staircase more accurately. It probably would be just like a very long extension ladder leading all the way into heaven, but sufficiently wide uh, that angels, it had lanes in it. Uh, that angels were ascending into heaven and other angels were uh, descending from heaven uh, uh, to, to the earth. And he then saw the, uh, the angels doing that ascending and descending on the ladder. And uh, he is made aware of, even though he's in one of the most desolate sections of, of Canaan, of Israel at that point in time, uh, that this is a hub of spiritual activity that is going on uh, centered upon uh, his life, and all of it under the supervision uh, of, of God. Uh, we would probably be shocked and stunned if we were given five minutes to, to see what is happening in the spiritual realm around us on any given day uh, of the week, in any particular point in time. All we can see, all we're really aware of, supremely, is the physical realm. But there's a spiritual realm that is, is, is as active and as real as the physical realm that is uh, going about its business in a, in a big way uh, all the time as well. And then in verse 13, uh, he saw the Lord God himself standing above the ladder uh, at its top. And what the latter represented uh, in this dream uh, is it's not teaching that there's a literal ladder somewhere to be found on the earth that is, uh, you know, the, the way to get into heaven somehow. The imagery is meant to uh, communicate a, a spiritual reality to Jacob by a, a physical means. And so, uh, and, and, and very much an, an awesome spiritual reality, and that is that, the, that God Almighty is interested in the affairs of the earth. And not only is he interested in the affairs uh, of the earth, but he is very, very active in the affairs uh, of the earth. The lives of individual men, uh, the, the uh, affairs of the world as a whole. And uh, he is engaged. A ladder, of course, is a link. It is a means of access. And... Uh, and that's what it was intended to communicate here in this dream. Uh, nobody would really understand uh, it, it, the full import of, of this dream and what this ladder is uh, for almost 2,000 years uh, before it would be fully understood what it represented. And that revelation came through a conversation between Jesus and the man who would become one of his disciples by the name of Nathaniel, as we read in uh, John's Gospel, Jesus saying to uh, Nathaniel, Verily, verily, I say to you, hereafter you shall see heaven open and the angels of God ascending and descending upon a ladder. No, upon the Son of Man. And it's almost certainly true that Jesus not only knew where Nathanael was sitting under a fig tree when Philip came to him and said, we found the Messiah, uh, it, it, it's Jesus of Nazareth. But, uh, and, and so sitting there under the tree, but almost certainly he was also reading while he was under that tree. 
and not merely reading, but very likely reading uh, this chapter of Genesis chapter uh, 28 and wondering what in the world is this dream that Jacob is dreaming and what does this ladder uh, represent? And thus Jesus referenced all of this uh, to Nathanael. He declared to him that it spoke of himself and uh, as the sole link between heaven and earth, between God and man, and uh, that Jesus is the means by which uh, heaven comes down to us, and he is the means by which we uh, then can go to heaven. Jesus would make this uh, 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 plain, uh, so plain later in his ministry when he was speaking to the disciples in John chapter 4, verse 6, and he declared, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Uh, no man comes to the Father but by me. The Holy Spirit uh, endorses the same understanding of this sole means of access to God uh, through the Apostle Paul when he wrote to Timothy in that first epistle, chapter 2, verse 5, for there is one God and one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. Now, for Jacob, this dream uh, revealed God's personal uh, interest in him uh, as well. And it revealed to Jacob all of the divine activity that was going on uh, around his life. All of the divine resources that were put into play uh, related to his life in order for God to keep all of the promises that had been made to Jacob now that were part of the uh, Abrahamic uh, covenant and uh, that, that came to him through Abraham uh, his grandfather, and then through his father, Isaac. Uh, notice in verse 13, the latter part of it, that what the Lord proceeded then to speak to Jacob. And uh, significantly, he introduced himself to uh, Jacob, and an introduction was uh, very much needed. He said, I am the Lord God of Abraham, your father, and the God of Isaac. And at this particular point in time, uh, it, it is at this time that Jacob was formally introduced to God. It's the first time that he has a personal, individual encounter with God. And it's at this point in time in his life that he then gets his own personal relationship with God. His relationship with God becomes his own. His relationship with God is no longer an extension of his families. It is, his relationship with God is no longer an extension of his father and his mother. Now in the eyes of God and in the eyes of man, he is no longer, spiritually speaking, supremely uh, the, the son of Isaac and of Rebekah. He now begins his own personal relationship, his own personal history with God. And it's for this reason that this event in Jacob's life is so often referred to as his conversion. And now here he is personally, individually, independent of everybody else, 
God revealed himself and all of his plans and his purposes that he had for Jacob's life. Jacob then, however imperfectly, to the best of his understanding of God, to the best of of what all of this meant, he now surrenders his life to God for uh, God's purposes. And of course, the sooner that happens in anybody's life, uh, the better. And, uh, and, and certainly this is the kind of thing that is so important if we've been raised in a Christian home uh, with a Christian heritage and the importance that somewhere in the course of things that uh, my relationship cease with the Lord cease now to be merely an extension of my father and my mother's relationship with God. But I develop a relationship with God that stands alone. It stands independent uh, of them. I don't, I'm not dependent upon them for the relationship. They don't have to nag me. They don't have to cajole me. They don't have to force me into the things that will produce a healthy relationship with God These are the things that I want to have and I want to do uh, on my own. And everybody hits that place. Uh, Certainly, again, here is someone who's been raised in a Christian home, so to speak, and uh, he isn't going to come out of pure paganism to come to know the Lord. And so within this kind of a context, uh, this is how it happens. Where that light goes on, uh, a younger person has a, a, a dynamic, life-changing, something that happens between them and God, and now it's, this is the relationship I want to have uh, with you. And it's a very good thing uh, happening here in Jacob's life, and of course it's a very good thing when it happens in any life, and the sooner uh, the better. You notice at the end of verse 13, the promises that God made to Jacob. And essentially, uh, what uh, God does is to promise Jacob exactly what he had promised to Abraham in the Abrahamic uh, covenant. And so here is before he leaves the house, his father Isaac pronounces the blessing of Abraham uh, upon uh, Jacob, but now uh, he, Jacob is going to hear it uh, from the top. He is going to hear uh, the, this from God. And the Lord in verse 13 promised that the land of Canaan uh, would be Jacob's and his descendants, uh, just as he had promised Abraham. And then in verse 14, God promised that he would introduce a great nation of people into human history through his bloodline, the Jews, and that from that bloodline, now Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, through Jacob's bloodline, that all of the nations of the earth would be blessed. And the, and, the, and the supreme fulfillment of that is the supplying uh, in human history, the world, with a Messiah, with a Savior, through the Jewish people and through that bloodline in particular, and blessing the world with Jesus himself. And then in verse 15, God promised to Jacob personally that he, uh, his, his presence, an unfailing presence, I'm going to be with you. And then he promised his protection uh, to his life and the fulfillment of, of this call upon Jacob's life. And then he promised that he would one day be faithful to bring Jacob back to the land he was leaving, back to uh, the land of Canaan. 
Do you notice in verse 16, uh, Jacob's response upon awakening uh, from this dream? He, uh, his immediate declarations are there in verses 16 and 17. He said, surely the Lord is in this place, and I did not know it. Again, he becomes aware of this spiritual realm that it was in high gear all around him when he felt it was just him out in the middle of nowhere on a dark night in, uh, in, in, uh, in the area there uh, of, of Bethel. He wasn't alone at all. God was wonderfully, massively present in there. And, and again, this is true about everywhere in the world. Uh, if we were to see that dimension... And, uh, and, but what, the light that was going on for Jacob here, it isn't so much that he's learning, uh, that, that he's getting like this uh, full understanding of the uh, omnipresence of God, that God is everywhere all at once. But probably in his mind, he's associating God especially with altars or a temple, or a church, or whatever, some kind of a holy place. And then he realizes that, no, everywhere is a holy place. Uh, Everywhere is a place to meet with God. Everywhere is a place that God wants to meet with with people. And that that he's uh, willing to do that. Not just in these places that are off like uh, special cities like Jerusalem, but even in Modesto, even in your school or your neighborhood or apartment complex or uh, the mall or in jail. This this dynamic is happening around us all of the time. In verse 17, he was filled with fear. And the, the fear of God, the respect of God, and he, and he expresses it by saying how awesome, fearful is this place. This is none other than the house of God, and this is the gate of heaven. Probably the first time in his life he has experienced the fear of God. You ever experienced the fear of God? I trust we all have. It is one of the greatest experiences in life. Uh, it, it really, really is. And you, you get the, you, the, that fear of God that occurs as we have come into a consciousness of His greatness, the greatness of His presence with us there at, at that moment. And it's one of the most humbling, one of the most purifying and uh, uh, worshipful experiences in life. And He feels it. You notice in verses 18 and 19, he senses an immediate need now to worship God in in the light uh, of this. And so what's he going to do? He takes this stone pillow that he has, which is obviously laying uh, lengthwise as he's been using it, and he sits it upright. So it's standing on its its end in in an unnatural position. Uh, for, uh, for uh, a stone, and he sets it up as a pillar intentionally. Sometimes you travel around different places around the world, maybe, or even the United States. You certainly, if you ever go to Hawaii, go to any of the islands, and you're going to see it, and uh, you'll be driving along the road, and you will see these stack of stones that somebody has uh, put there as some kind of a memorial or some kind of a monument. And uh, it can be, especially if you go to Kona, it's just rock as far as you want to see 
lava rock and and, uh, some part of of that particular island. And then you'll see this thing sitting up and, and it catches our eye. And why does it catch our eye? It catches our eye because it isn't natural. It, it stands out from the natural form that the rocks take. And we see there's intelligence behind it. Someone has put this pillar up because this place means something important to them. Something important has happened to them in this place. And that's exactly what uh, uh, Jacob wants to do here uh, with, this, with this stone. And, uh, and so he places it there uh, in place to comm- commemorate this great encounter that he had had with God, the revelation he had received from God, and then he poured oil on the stone. Now, that's a big deal. Uh, when you're traveling 500 miles on foot, uh, you don't carry a lot. And, uh, and, and so this, this oil probably represents the most valuable thing he was carrying. And, and he pours it on the stone, and uh, all of it is an expression of his heart of worship toward the Lord and, and of the dedication of his life to God's purposes. And then he renames the place Bethel. And the word Bethel is made, made up of two things, Beth, which means house of, in Hebrew, El is one of the names of God. And so it means the house of God. That's how he named it. And then notice in verse 22, and uh, if I've lost you thus far, let me get you back at this point. Notice the vow that he made to God in verses 20 to 22. And the vow that he makes is dominated by two great words, the word if and the word then. Look at it again in verse 20. Then Jacob made a vow saying, if God will be with me and keep me in this way that I am going and give me bread to eat and clothing to put on so that I come back to my father's house in peace, then the Lord shall be my God. If If God did all of the things that he had essentially promised to Jacob to do in his dream, to be with him, to protect him, to provide for his needs, bring him back into the land of Canaan, Jacob says to God, if you do that, then, uh, Jacob said, uh, he would make the Lord his God. He would give God uh, the great privilege of his worship and his uh, commitment and then as if Jacob can't get any more Jacobier than he is here. Uh, and he goes on, and just to sweeten the pot a little bit more, this offer that he's making to God. He promised to return to God a tenth of whatever material blessings that God gave to him. God, whatever you give me, I'll give you a cut uh, out of this. I, I'll give you a piece uh, of, of the action. And so he made a vow now to enter into an if-then relationship with God, where God is put to the test rather than Jacob, and where Jacob is in the driver's seat rather than God, and where God must be the one who is always proving himself worthy of Jacob's devotion as opposed to being the other way around. And all of this isn't an expression 
of devotion or commitment to God that is worthy of God, Jacob is involved in a negotiation with God here. And in an appallingly one-sided negotiation at that. And it is certainly, under the weight of the passage, would make any of us want to just stop for a moment and examine our lives for any percentage of Jacob that might be found in us. To whatever percentage of our relationship with God is an if-then. Uh, if you do this, then I will uh, do that. And whether it represents 5% of my relationship with God or 0% or 90%, uh, where I'm in the driver's seat of this thing and God will conform to my image or he will lose me as a follower or as a worshiper of him. And all of it is as old as Jacob. It's an if-then relationship with God. It's a negotiation that, that has gone on. And there are some who read this passage, and they really, really feel bad for Jacob here. I mean, this really looks bad uh, in the Bible. And so they try and uh, rescue Jacob from his embarrassment here. And so they'll say there, related to verse 20, that the word if can also be taken in the sense of the word sense, S-I-N-C-E. And, and, uh, and thus, Jacob was not making his devotion to God conditional, but he was merely expressing his faith that God was going to keep all of these promises, and he devoted his life to God accordingly. And, and I respect and I admire every effort by every good-hearted person who tries to look at anyone or anything in its best light. However, as much as you might try to sanctify the if, and it really is if here in the passage. It is, if is superior to sense in terms of the translation. But no matter how much a person might try to sanctify the if, you're still left, left with a then uh, of verse 21. And that then is always a conditional word. I mean, it refuses to yield to any pressure at all in, in that regard, any attempt to sanctify it, and it remains within the passage and in life as conditional a term as ever it always was. One commentator wrote in defense of, of Jacob in, uh, in kind of uh, dismissing this if-then uh, as relationship with God as being a possibility uh, for, for Jacob. And he wrote, and I quote, he said, but to have bargained and bartered with God in the way which uh, this, that is if, suggests before assenting to accept God as his object of trust and worship would have been little less than criminal. Precisely. <laughs> That's exactly the point. What he's doing in the spiritual realm here is absolutely criminal. It is the whole point of the passage. This is Jacob at his ugliest. This is Jacob now trying to do to God what he had already done to Esau, 
what he had already done to Isaac, what he had already done all of his life, now bringing it into his relationship with God. And the fact of the matter is, is that Jacob is not intended to come off looking good here at all, but to be seen as every bit of the heel-catching, deceitful, manipulative, carnal, crafty personality that he brought now into this new relationship with God. And to recognize this is who he is, and this is what he was, and this is the person that he brought into his new relationship with God. But that's not the pinnacle of the passage. Don't stop there. That would be to stop one step short of one of the most amazing revelations of God in the Bible. Because notice that in that context, wonder of wonders, the amazing grace that God extended to Jacob and that he met Jacob exactly where he was at that moment in his life. In understanding that this was all that Jacob knew about God and what was appropriate in a relationship with God. And so we sing the song, Come Just As You Are, concerning all of this, concerning coming to God. And why is that song so beloved, Come Just As You Are? Because how else can we come to God except as we are? We can't come to Him in any other way. And so we do. And each and every one of us comes to God with the best understanding of God that we possess. And then what happens? God meets us exactly where we are, and then He takes us the rest of the way, not only to a fuller and a more complete understanding of Him, but then He takes us into Christ-likeness, into the conformity of Christ, changing us inside and out, and being changed in the image of Christ is the greatest thing that can happen in a human life. And one of the most amazing things to me as I just look at this particular passage is Jacob prays this prayer to God, this unbelievable, conditional prayer to God. And God didn't protest. God didn't correct him. God didn't get angry. God didn't turn on his heel and say, I'm going to leave him for six more months out in Bethel, and I'll come back and see where he's at then. There isn't a word of protest from God in any of this. He takes Jacob exactly where he is in all those flaws, and then now moves him forward in his plan for his life. I think about when I came to the Lord as ignorant of the ugliness of my flesh as ever uh, Jacob was. 
and coming to the Lord and all of the unaware of all of these cringeworthy attitudes that were in my life, a pride in my life, opinions that I, all of these things that I brought into my relationship with God. And yet he took me on and with amazing grace and patience he brought me uh, forward in that that relationship with him began to change these things in my life, many other things in my life, and he continues to do it to this very day. And do you remember when you first became a Christian and what you were like, the understanding of God that you brought into all of that? The Jacob that was ever so present in your life as it was in mine. And then all of the grace and all of the kindness and all of the patience that God showed you in meeting you right where you were. Without a complaint, without a protest, without a correction. And he brought you into his family. Making you into something altogether new. Think about when you were a brand new Christian, brand new baby Christian, and beginning there in our relationship with him, and then he brings us into a little bit greater maturity. But think about how vulnerable a newborn baby is physically. Think about how vulnerable a newborn spiritual baby is. And all of us were that. Remember back to the time when everything about God in the Christian life was brand new. And everything in the Christian life was a first. I remember your first Bible and pulling those pages apart and hearing them unstick as you began to read the Bible. And remember your first Bible study where literal everything was brand new to you. And then, and how, it, it, no matter where you went in the church that you went to or the Bible study that you went to, if they were teaching in Deuteronomy or teaching in Leviticus or teaching in Obadiah, somehow God got through to you in the course of that and spoke something into your understanding of Him and your relationship with Him. And then remember your first prayer, the first time you prayed out loud, the first time you shared the gospel with someone, a family member, a friend. The first time that you led someone to Christ, the first worship song you ever sang to the Lord out loud. You'd never sung in your whole life. Now you're singing to God in a room. (laughs) And then the first time that you lifted your hands while worshiping the Lord in song. The first time you sensed God uh, guiding you to do something. The first time that you stepped out in Christian service. The first time you learned about spiritual gifts. The first time that you stepped out in in faith in your spiritual gift. The first time that you became aware uh, of sin by a conviction of the Holy Spirit and then confessed that sin to God and received His forgiveness. All of these firsts of, of the Christian life and on and on and on it goes for each of us as Christians. And then remember the incredible ignorance and carnality we brought into our relationship with God. And yet... Like Jacob, how God took us on and made us his workmanship. And think about the amazing grace of God behind that. Don't ever sanctify Jacob 
in this scene because you will spoil the entire scene and the entire lesson that it's intended to produce within us and the awe and the gratitude at the amazing grace of God in meeting us where we were and then bringing us to this place in our walk with the Lord. And that's the only thing I want you to take from the Bible study this morning is to just give some time today in this week to remember that encounter and what you knew and what happened in that, that moment and then to think about the Jacob that you were to whatever degree at that moment and then how faithful God was to do in you and me what he's going to do in Jacob and that is to bring him into the fullness of his plans for his life. God's grace really, really is an amazing, amazing grace. If you sit here this morning and you're not yet a Christian, Paul the Apostle, he declared of himself at the time of his salvation. And talk about coming uh, to the Lord on rocky ground. And he said, this is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am chief. And however, for this reason, I obtain mercy that in me first Christ Jesus might show all longsuffering as a pattern to those who are going to believe on him for everlasting life. The Apostle Paul said, one of the reasons that God saved me the way that he saved me is so that nobody for the rest of human history would ever consider themselves to be beyond the reach of God's grace and the heart of God and the desire of God to save. Paul was saying, listen, if God will save me in light of the person that I was, he will save you. And that's the truth of the matter. The old saying is that there's none so good that they need not be saved. And then for our purposes this morning, none so bad that they cannot be saved. And that's good news in this world. And that's the God of the Bible. And that's the God who wants to be your God. And if you've never given your life to Christ and become a follower of His and entered into a relationship with God as a result, there are going to be pastors and other men and women up in front immediately after the service. And today they'd love to pray with you to begin the relationship that you've been created for and without which nothing will make sense to you in life and nothing will satisfy the emptiness that is there until we're engaged in the thing that we've been created for. If you need prayer for anything this morning, they'd love to pray with you and, and for you as well. Let's stand together now and we'll close in prayer. Father, we thank you for this testimony of Jacob. And we thank you that he came just as he was. And you didn't protest it. You didn't rebuke him. You didn't correct him. You just saved him. And we thank you, Lord, that that is our testimony as well. Thank you for being that kind of a God 
That was the God that we needed at the end of our search. And we're glad that we found you there. Thank you for saving us. Thank you for your work of sanctification in our life. The changes that you have brought into our life, the quality of life that we would never have otherwise known. We bless you, Lord, this morning for your amazing, amazing grace. And we do so in Jesus' name. Amen.